So I'd like to um, offer a talk tonight about practice, what brings us to practice. Trust you all can hear okay? Yeah, good. And first, um, foremost, congratulations for completing a full day of practice. One down and how many to go? <laughs> And um, I really mean congratulations because um, it's not easy to um, to sit with ourselves. There's a Selenese uh, monk. He's actually um, the abbot of the Washington Vihara, as well as a meditation center and. West Virginia, his name is Bhante Gunaratana, and wonderful teacher and writer, practitioner. He's written a number of books, and this quote comes from this book called Mindfulness in Plain English, which is really, truly a classic. <clears throat> but he says, um, he speaks about... Um, the process of meditation, and so um, I trust many of you will relate to this. And he's kind of, um, I love his simple and very down-to-earth way of uh, expressing things. And so he says, somewhere in this process of meditation, you will come face-to-face -face with the realization that you are completely crazy that your mind is a shrieking madhouse on wheels, barreling down the hill, utterly out of control and hopeless. Then he goes on to say, it's not a problem. You're not any crazier than you were yesterday. It's always been this way, but perhaps you just haven't ever noticed. So I find it very relieving, and I can tell by some nods and laughter. Um, we can relate to this, this shrieking madhouse on wheels barreling down the hill, utterly out of control and hopeless. But no problem, you're not any crazier than you were yesterday. That's hopeful. <laughs> <coughs> so, um, you know, many of us, of course, experience challenges with meditation, and I believe Jill's going to speak about these more tomorrow night, but just want to help normalize, um, you know, coming here and putting on the brakes, if you will, and then beginning to sit with ourselves, we begin to experience so clearly uh, this mind. Ay, ay, ay. So I just want to help normalize all of this. And to me, there's a very beautiful um, poem or reading that uh, speaks about the value of stopping, though at first, yes, it's like this raving madhouse barreling down the hill utterly out of control. But there's a real importance in the value of stopping. And um, maybe rather than reading the whole poem, I'll just recite um, the 
this one part from Pablo Neruda, who's a Chilean poet, Nobel Prize winner in literature some years ago. And the poem is about what would it be like if we all could just stop for 12 seconds. <clears throat> the whole world. Actually, I feel inspired to read it now. It says, we'll all count to 12 and we'll all keep still. And for once on the face of the earth, let's not speak in any language. Let's stop for a second and not move our arms too much. And this would be an exotic moment. Without rush, without engines, we'd all be together in a sudden strangeness. And the fishermen in the cold sea would not harm the whales. And the man gathering salt would not hurt his hands. And those who prepare green wars, wars with gas, wars with fire. Victories with no survivors would put on clean clothes and walk about with their sisters and brothers in the shade, doing nothing. What I want should not be confused with total, inac total inactivity, for life is what it is about. Now these next lines is what I was going to recite to you, and to me it's one of the most beautiful renderings of why we would stop and to meditate. He says, if we were not so single-minded about keeping our lives moving and for once could do nothing. Perhaps this huge silence might interrupt this sadness of never understanding ourselves and of threatening ourselves with death. Perhaps the earth can teach us when everything seems to be dead in winter and later proves to be alive. Now, I'll count to 12, and you keep quiet, and I will go. <clears throat> but if we were not so single-minded about keeping our lives moving and for once could do nothing, perhaps this huge silence might interrupt this sadness of never understanding ourselves and of threatening ourselves with death. Perhaps the earth can teach us when everything seems to be dead in winter and later proves to be alive. And so this um, week here that we are together these days, uh, we're entering into the huge silence. And perhaps with this huge silence that we enter into, we can begin to understand more our own mind and hearts, and to begin to make some peace. <clears throat> and it's found from within. Hafiz, a Persian poet, he says, not many teachers in this world can give you as much enlightenment as sitting all alone, maybe even just for three to five days. And you can just sit in your closet, that would do. And that means not leaving, and you better get a friend to help you with a few sandwiches, and you better get yourself a chamber pot. No reading, no writing. Let's aim for the high 360-degree detox, though this sitting alone is not recommended if you're normally sedated. But dear one, don't let Hafiz fool you. There is a ruby buried inside here. Don't let Hafiz fool you. There's a ruby buried inside here. I believe that this is the great discovery of the Dharma of the Buddha, is this discovery of the ruby of awakening. 
that is possible within every one of us. And through these practices of the foundations of mindfulness that are supportive of awakening, Nibbana, freedom, peace. And the Buddha was a great rebel because in these teachings it said that you are not noble because of your birth. At the time of India there was a caste system and you were born into different classes that reflected nobility or not. And the Buddha said that um, nobility is the purification of the heart and mind, and this is possible for anyone. From the untouchables, to the warriors, to the workers, to the brahmas, to anyone can awaken. So there's a ruby buried inside here. And this is for us to sit with, to learn about our hearts, how perhaps some of these stories that we have identified with and tell ourselves again and again are not the full definition of who we are. But tonight I want to speak about what brings us to practice. I know that if everything was just peachy, rosy, creamy, you probably wouldn't want to sign up to come on a retreat and not talk and not look at one another and do this rigorous schedule. What brings us to the retreat often is that uh, we become aware that life is not so peachy, rosy, creamy. This life has... Um, as one expression says, the 10,000 joys and equally the 10,000 sorrows. It's everything. Within our own lives and, you know, as we look around um, in the world, there's the beauty and the pain. It's, it's both there, not to be denied, either one. But we all live with these conditions of life, of aging, illness, death, separation, and perhaps it's what brings us to practice, what touches us, what shakes us up. There's a very poignant story um, circulating the internet, so hard to know if it's true or not. But the story itself is a universal story. And I'd like to share with you, it's from a New York City taxi cab driver. <clears throat> and he says that I arrived at the address and I honked the horn and after waiting a few minutes, I honked again. I thought about driving away, but instead I put the car in park and decided to walk up to the door and give it a knock. And then I heard, just a minute, sounded like a frail elderly voice. And then I heard something being dragged across the floor. After a long pause, the door opened and there was a small woman in her 90s that stood before me and she was wearing a 
print dress and a pillbox hat with a veil pinned on it like somebody out of a 1940s movie. And by her side was a small nylon suitcase. So I looked into the apartment. It looked as if someone hadn't lived there in years. All the furniture was covered with sheets. There were no clocks on the walls, no knickknacks or utensils on the counters. In the corner, there was a cardboard box filled with photos and glassware. And she asked me, would you carry my bag out to the car? And I said, yes. And I took the suitcase to the cab and I returned to assist the woman. And she took my arm and we walked slowly toward the curb. She kept thanking me for my kindness. And I told her it's nothing. I try to treat my passengers the way I would want my mother to be treated. She said, you're such a good boy. And when we got in the cab, she gave me an address, and then she asked, could you drive through downtown? It's not the shortest way, I answered. I don't mind, she said. I'm in no hurry. I am on my way to a hospice. I looked into the rearview mirror, and her eyes were glistening. She said, I don't have any family left. The doctor says I don't have very long. I quietly reached over and I shut off my meter. What route would you like me to take? I asked. And for the next two hours, we drove through the city. She showed me the building where she had once worked as an elevator operator. We drove through the neighborhood where she and her husband had lived when they were newlyweds, and she pulled me in front of a furniture warehouse that had once been a ballroom where she had gone dancing as a girl. And sometimes she'd ask me to slow down in front of a particular building or a corner, and we'd sit staring into the darkness, saying nothing. At the first hint of the sun creasing along the horizon, she suddenly said, I'm tired, let's go. And so we drove to the address she had given me. Two orderlies came out to the cab, and I got her suitcase. The orderlies put her into a wheelchair and rolled her into the building. And she asked me, reaching into her purse, how much do I owe you? I said, nothing. But she said, you have to make a living. And I responded, there's other passengers. And almost without thinking, I just bent over and I gave her a hug and she held on to me tightly. And she said, you just gave an old woman a little moment of joy. And I said, thank you. And I squeezed her hand and then I walked out into the dim morning light. It felt like behind me a door was shut. The sound of a closing of a life. I didn't pick up any more passengers that shift. I drove aimlessly lost in thought. For the rest of the day, I could hardly talk. What if that woman had gotten an angry driver or one who was impatient to end his shift? What if I had refused to take the run or honked once and then left? 
On quick review, I don't think that I have done anything more important in my life. Remember once asking my teacher when he it was his 80th birthday, and I asked him, "How how fast does 80 years feel like?" I was in my 40s. And he looked at me and he smiled, and then he went like this. <laughs> he lived in 98 probably still felt it was like that. There's a Hindu proverb that thinks everyone else is going to die but not me. So I want to speak about what brings us to practice. What brings us here? In the teachings of the Dharma, the journey of the Buddha begins with his own dilemma in his own life. Before being known as the Buddha, his name was Siddhartha Gautama. And he was born into a noble family, he was a prince and destined to become a king. It was very customary of those times when a newborn is there that they will invite some holy people to look at the ears, the legs, the arms, the signs, and kind of give predictions of what will be. <clears throat> and four of the five said he'll become a great king, which his father was very happy about. And one of them, the fifth one, said, no, he, he's going to become a Buddha. And the king was uh, very surprised to hear that and also very concerned because he wanted his son to become a king, not, not a Buddha. And so the king decided to, um, to create for Siddhartha to live a very sheltered life and to have all the pleasures of that day, and those times, and education, and sports, and you know, sword, f you know, training, and all these types of things. And so, you could say that um, you know the stories go that he had a palace for the fall, a palace for the winter, a palace for the spring, a palace for the summer. All the luxuries of the day, and he grew up. I trust enjoying those things, and gradually met a partner, Yasodara, and they got married. And in his 29th year of life, for some, just something kind of awakened in Siddhartha, and 
a kind of a yearning to go outside of the palace gates and into the kingdom and to look around. He went with his charioteersman, his Uber driver, Chana, charioteersman, or Lyft, whatever you want to call. And, um, and they went on this outing beyond the palace gates into the kingdom and Having Siddhartha having lived a very sheltered life and also just being filled with one pleasure after another, it was as if like he really didn't notice too much about what was going on. And he came across someone very old and bent over, walking in an unsteady gait, and wrinkles and hair had fallen off and Anyways, he asked Jana, who is this? And goes, this is, this is an old person. And Siddhartha was still kind of like perplexed, an old person. He goes, yes, if you live long enough, um, you will get old, and that no one can escape from aging. And this kind of had a deep impression upon Siddhartha kind of shook him up. Every time I look in the mirror, I get shook up. The gray hair in my hair is kind of falling out. And so he, this was a real, this really shook him up, encountering aging and beginning to understand that no one could escape from aging and story goes that um, he went out on another journey outside of the palace into the kingdom and came across a person that was very ill. And Siddhartha had never seen someone so violently ill and asked China, what's this? This is a person that's very ill and, you know, one time or another, no doubt we can try to keep our health, but... Um, Every one of us is subject to illness. And this also very much shook up Siddhartha. The story goes he went out a third time and came across a dead body, lifeless, gray, cold to touch. No movement of the breath of the heart, cold and the Buddhist, the Siddhartha said, who's this? This is a person that has died. And at this, uh, Siddhartha was very distraught. And, and, and Chana said, yeah, like, um, no one can escape from death. So these three signs of aging, illness, and death penetrated into Siddhartha, and he became very discontent, very troubled, very restless, realizing all these wealths and joys and pleasures and to all of a sudden beginning to realize they're not going to last. Jane Kenyon, she writes in her poem, Otherwise, that I got out of bed on two strong legs. It might have been otherwise. And I ate cereal, sweet milk, and a ripe, flawless peach. It might have been otherwise. 
And I took the dog uphill to the birchwood, and all morning I did the work that I love, and at noon I lied down with my mate. It might have been otherwise. And we ate dinner together at a table with silver candlesticks. It might have been otherwise. And I slept in a bed in a room with paintings on the walls, and I planned another day, just like this day. But one day I know it will be otherwise. One day I know it will be otherwise. So you could say that uh, Sir Arthur was very deeply penetrated inside, is like pierced is maybe the word, of this waking up to these realities of life that he had never somehow maybe perhaps living in a dream world and you know you, you, know, you see what you want to see. Sometimes now, it's only now, it's just about 64. Oh yeah, this is what aging is. It's a different view than 40 or 20. Like, it's really happening. It's not just a theory. Yeah, it's not a theory. And so there's something about this waking up, and maybe the word is really pierced. Like, what is this life? And there's a sense of urgency, what, what to do, what to do, what to do. And he went out one other time with Chana, and he encountered the fourth sign. These signs are actually known in the Dharma as the heavenly messengers, which is kind of a very unusual term for aging, illness, and death. And the fourth one I'll speak about in a minute. But they're heavenly because they're considered that these are the messengers that wake you up. The fourth heavenly messenger was a, like a monk or a samana, a holy person. Um, and Siddhartha just happened to see this person walking by and, and just realized this person had a completely different vibe than other people that he had met. There was something about the way that this person walked, lifting, moving, placing, the, the sense of the serenity, the sense of you know, very just robes, there wasn't any princely garments on, but yet this person had a look of, of, of some type of contentment. And who is this person? Siddhartha asked Chana. Chana said, this is a person that's dedicating their life to understand the meaning of life. And I think Siddhartha never knew that this type of thing ever existed. Because he was just really in, in recent days becoming aware of this piercing truth of aging, illness, and death, but then to discover that there might be a way to understand this. This the fourth heavenly messenger. And so he decided, um, even though he had all these palaces for each season and family and wealth and luxury and pleasure and everything else that this was not enough and he yearned to want to understand what is the meaning of this life. It said that um, he was preparing 
to leave, and his father came and begged him to um, please stay. And there's this conversation back and forth between them where Siddhartha says, I can stay. Um, and the father said, great, great, and, and I'll promise you three things. And so Siddhartha said, okay. Promise me that I won't age, get sick, or die. <laughs> Even though he had so much wealth, he couldn't satisfy his son and begged him, well, how about two wishes or one wish? But every time it's like, well, how about aging and illness or how about just death? And um, daddy couldn't uh, grant that. And so it said that um, he, he left the palace. And um, he journeyed into the night and took off his uh, princely garments and took on robes and began to study with different meditation teachers to understand this meaning of life. And it said that he traveled from different teacher to different teacher, and he was a very smart and good student. And with practice, he, with many of these teachers, he learned everything that there was to be taught about these meditative practices and absorptions. And so much so that often teachers would say, all right, you've learned everything that I've taught, and please come and sit next to me, and you can teach with me. But yet, Siddhartha felt that um, even though he could calm his mind to become so one-pointed, to become one with an object, deep serenity, calmness, tranquility, absorption, one-pointedness, unification, he still felt like he hadn't fully understood about suffering and its causes. And so he continued in his journeys, and then he heard about, perhaps it's through self-mortification, the punishing of the body. That's how you can awaken. There's a traditions that he actually even exists in India today of uh, self-mortification practices. Some are pretty amazing. This is this, these sadhus that actually they bring their hand up in the air pointing towards the divine, and then they don't take their arm down for 40 years, and it gets atrophied all types of extreme practices that come from this yearning to awaken. And so he also practiced very severely these self-mortification practices, particularly the one of giving up food or restricting his food finally to one grain of rice a day. It's said that he came to the brink of collapse when he put his hand on his belly. He could feel his tailbone and realizing he's not going to be in this world much longer if he doesn't take your nourishment. <clears throat> and so he left this group of five ascetics that were practicing self-mortification and began to nourish his body and to restore his health. 
And after restoring his health to a good degree, he came across a tree, the beautiful tree, and he decided to take his seat underneath this tree. And he took a deep resolve that, you know, he had been to so many different teachers and teachings and practices. And he took this resolve that there's no other place to go, there's no one else that I need to practice with, I need to sit here by myself, and I'll sit here till my skin rolls off my body. I mean, I'm going to sit here, this powerful resolve, I'm going to just sit here, there's no other place to go except to look inside my own heart. And so he took his seat. And it said that um, as things began to settle a little bit, he recalled a memory of him as a boy. <clears throat> and it was a memory that was similar in the sense that he was sitting underneath another tree on a very beautiful northern India day and kind of like northern California. These, some of these beautiful days are just exquisite where you can feel at one with the world, at one with the universe. And he was evidently recalling this day where he had that experience of feeling one with the universe. But then he looked over and there was a field and he saw um, some farmers, and an oxen and a plow. And he just began to look at them and then they began to see the, the plow blade going into the earth. And for whatever reason, perhaps because of his sensitivity and feeling the sense of connectedness, the preciousness of life, that plow blade awakened in him like all of the worms that were being cut open and crying out in pain. And there's kind of this juxtaposition right there of the preciousness and the <clears throat> fragility of this life. And this had a big impact on his heart. And as I was mentioning a little bit earlier, the, the most prevalent of meditation practices of his times was developing of absorption, poly, the word is jhanas, this material, immaterial jhanas, these deep, deep levels of one-pointedness, absorption, unification, oneness. And so he was very adept in developing these skills as a yogi, as a meditator, to develop these deep meditative absorptions, but also realized in the end that they could calm his mind, but they didn't bring him the understanding that he was seeking for about suffering and its causes. And perhaps, you know, we don't quite know what happened, but perhaps that story of that memory of this preciousness and this fragility of life, of those plow and the blade going in and the worms sensing almost the cries of pain, that something happened in that meditation that he hadn't encountered before. Perhaps it was this realization of impermanence and of pain, of suffering. But it's also said that perhaps he began to use this concentrated awareness in such a way, rather than getting fully into absorption, he began to use his concentrated awareness to becoming aware of the changing nature of things. The breath coming in and going out. 
sounds arising, sounds passing, physical sensations appearing and disappearing, the states of mind, effervescent, ephemeral, ever-changing. And so as he began to focus, supposedly, um, with this mark of change, rather than going into absorption, developing this sense of the impermanent, ownerless nature of things, some deep realizations began to arise within him. And the first realization, and sometimes this is more commonly known and expressed as the noble truths, but to me they're realizations. And the realization and the acknowledgement that there is indeed suffering. Yes, there's joys and wonders in the world, but there's also indeed suffering, and this is actually what brought him onto the path. This recognition of aging, illness, death, separation. So there was just a very humbling and sobering and deep acknowledging of this truth of life that there is indeed suffering. And then began to turn his attention towards the causes and awakened within him a deep realizations of the causes of unawareness, ignorance, and seeing clearly into the nature of things that gives rise to misconceptions about finding happiness outside of ourselves rather than inside ourselves. That due to these misconceptions gives rise in looking for pleasures outside of ourselves, whether they're sensual delights or the desperate needs to be someone, to be known, looking for approval outside of us to become whole, or the sense of negation and annihilation, the, the not wanting to feel anything. And giving rise to the deep realizations that the way towards freedom is the cessation, the gradual lessening of these. And the last great realization is the path, the Eightfold Path, how to live our lives in such a way that we can experience deep freedom. And so we'll be going into these in a more thorough way in these days to come. I just wanted to kind of give a little overview because we could say that the heart and the essence of these teachings, the Dharma is found within these four great realizations or noble truths that are discovered through these practices of satipatthana, the foundations of mindfulness of the body, feelings, states of mind. The dharmas, these collections of teachings that point to the way of freedom. So there'll be more that will... Uh, unpack about this. But I often in retreats like to speak about these heavenly messengers because I trust um, each and every one of us here has been visited by them already. I don't believe you could be here if you haven't met them. Whether it's within ourselves or with those that we know, The realities of aging, the realities of illness, the realities of death. Just last April, my father died. 
it became otherwise. And somewhere along the way, whether you heard from someone or somehow you heard about meditation, that maybe there's actually a way to make more sense of this life. That's why you're here. I don't think you could be here if you haven't met these messengers. I would love for you later, when we do a walking meditation, to reflect upon these. Who's been your messengers? that have woken you to aging, to illness, to death, to uh, somebody or maybe someone you didn't even know. Maybe it was like Mother Teresa, just like the way that she lived her life inspired you that maybe there's another way. Or maybe you've had first-hand accounts. I had a first-hand account. I've had many fourth heavenly messengers. I'll speak about my first one was a college professor and his name was Bill Jackson. And I think, um, before I go into that a little bit, I think this is why I relate so deeply with Buddhism, with the Dharma. Because Siddhartha's story of encountering aging and illness and death is so, like, yeah, that's like me. Yeah, I can relate to that. I've had similar experiences. So it's such a human story, not a superhuman story. Such a human story of the acknowledgement of pain and finding the heart, and that it's possible. I actually can't imagine what my life would be like if I didn't encounter these practices. I'd be totally crazy. At least now I know I'm crazy, but if I didn't, I'd just be crazy and not know I'm crazy. <laughs> So grateful for these teachings. And um, as the Buddha said too, the, um, don't believe the teacher because the teacher says so, and don't believe the books because the books say so. See for yourself with your own direct experience. So this, this is one of the things I just love about the Dharma and these teachings. It's see for your own experience. Anything we even say here, don't take it on blind faith. See, Test it out, measure it, use your reasoning, your heart, your investigation. Investigation is one of the factors of awakening, to see for ourselves what's here. I love that about this practice, to see for ourselves. So Bill Jackson, So I had my own realization at four years old, driving down Corey Hill Road with my parents sitting in the back seat. I'm not sure why and how this happened, but I realized quite clearly that I was going to die and everybody was going to die and it could happen at any moment. And that's kind of a historic moment in one's life. I don't know if any of you remember the time when you realized 
you were going to die and everyone was going to die. Can anybody remember that, that moment? So some of us, yes, and some of us, not. And by the way, if you don't know, well, sorry, it's true. The death, the death rate is one per person, and uh, that's just how it is. <laughs> one per person. It was quite shocking at four years old to realize that. And it was like my life changed in that moment. And I remember expressing to my mommy and daddy what I had just discovered. And, and they, my mother replied to me very lovingly, don't worry, Bobby. It was called Bobby in those days. Don't worry, Bobby. It's not going to happen for a long, long, long time. And somehow, even if four, I could recognize that they were trying to be nice. <laughs> and I could receive that. But I also knew what I knew. And that was that... They were not telling me the truth. Yeah, my mother said, it won't happen for a long, 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 long time. I guess how we measure long, I don't know. I wasn't upset that my parents <laughs> said, don't worry, it's not going to happen for a long time. Um, but what I, I knew what I knew. I knew what I knew, that it could happen at any time. And the universe actually really... Um, reinforced that. By the time I was eight or nine, I lost a younger brother who I shared a room with. He died of an illness. Buddy. My best friend, Ellen Chabot, I played every day after school with her. And one day she wasn't there and I went and knocked on the door and her father was crying and told me to get out. And then I found out later she died that night or the night before of a diabetic coma. And then my grandfather, who lived downstairs for me, I was very close with. You could say he was also one of my heavenly messengers, spiritual teachers, taught me the please and thank you club. <laughs> <laughs> Grandpa Ben, he'd also played baseball with me. I like that. But he died of a heart attack one night. And um, this really shook up my life, majorly. Yeah. Yeah, I'm just thinking my father's shaking up my life a lot as well. It's a very different view when it happens when it gets up close. It's not just theory anymore. Just like some years ago, I nearly died of a very severe bacterial infection called flesh-eating bacteria, necrotic fasciitis. That was over 20 years ago, and um, very lucky that I survived and didn't have an amputation. I actually have a big whopping scar on my foot. If anybody wants to see it after the retreat, I'm happy to show you. It's, it's kind of my tattoo. <laughs> Because it kind of shows me where I dipped into death and pulled back out. And every day I look at that scar and it reminds me of the fragility and the preciousness of this life. But it's a different view lying in that hospital bed. It's just a different view.
So growing up, I was a very confused and lost child, a young adult. I was brought up in a Jewish family and was bar mitzvahed and went through Hebrew school. And it turned out that my temple, um, often they would hire uh, Hebrew school teachers that were survivors of concentration camps. Uh, and we didn't even have the words PTSD then, post-traumatic stress disorder. It was called shell shock. And, um, and being around um, these very traumatized teachers um, made me even more confused about life. I didn't know, couldn't have never imagined what they had been through and seen tattoos on their arms with numbers and you could just tell something went on but what I don't know the Beatles grew their hair long Dylan singing the times are changing Vietnam war is raging draft I had a high draft number so I was not enlisted and not so long after that draft the war ended, but by that point, um, you know, it was kind of crazy times like today. <laughs> and I was just so confused and lost, and um, I barely graduated high school. And I didn't even think about going to, I didn't know what to do after that. I was working in a chicken restaurant. And, um, I didn't really know what to do. We were in a, a middle-class family, so there was enough, fortunately, due to some privilege in that way. So after graduating high school, I, I didn't quite know, and a couple of friends went off to college, and um, I didn't even think of applying. And one friend said, well, I decided, he, he said he was going to take a, a year, an extra year of high school at some other place. And I think I was talking with him, said, hey, maybe you want to do that. I said, well, all right, maybe I'll go do that. <laughs> and took an extra year of high school and decided to apply to a state college in northern Vermont. I wanted to go to northern Vermont because I liked skiing. And I was very fortunate and lucky enough to eventually get into a small state college in the northeast kingdom of Vermont. And for the first two years, I majored in skiing, <laughs> getting drunk, smoking marijuana and other drugs, and trying to have girlfriends. And after two years, I flunked out and was readmitted back with a warning. And my mother begged me, Bobby, isn't there something that would really interest you in school? And um, I looked at the course catalog and I knew I didn't want any more reading, writing, arithmetic, geography, science, history. Um, they didn't speak to me. That's really a reflection of my lostness. Those are beautiful disciplines. But as I looked through the course catalog, something perked my interest, my eye. 
and it had to do with food. And the first title of the name of the class was called The Wisdom of the East. I could not even pronounce the colon and the words after it till I learned it. It was called Wisdom of the East, colon, Hinduism, Buddhism, Taoism, and Zen. But why I say food, and it's a, this is really true, and it's not meant to be funny. Growing up, I also had the privilege of, at times, to be able to go out to restaurants, and my family really loved Chinese food, and I love Chinese food, too. And um, I can remember, even as a, a young boy, I always was so fascinated in Chinese restaurants. In the sense of the artwork, the big Buddhas, the dragons, the colors, the music was different. The waiters and waitresses had a different vibe than the waiters or waitresses at Howard Johnson's or Denny's. There was something that just, I just can't explain it. I maybe, you know, if there's, if there's rebirth, I, I'm pretty sure I was from Asia. I just feel so at home. As a matter of fact, when I first went to Burma and I ordained as a monk, I felt so at home there. When I met my teacher, he was exactly how I thought he would be. He was like, there was no surprise whatsoever. And I mean, I just felt so at home. So I decided to take this class because of the dragons, the Buddhas, the food. <laughs> I had no idea what I was getting into. And it was like walking into Hogwarts and uh, walked into the class, the room, I'll never forget on that first day, there was a professor sitting on top of his desk in a full lotus position. I knew something was different because I had never had a professor in my life ever that sat on top of his desk in a full lotus position. I used to have professors sitting behind their desk with suit jackets and ties and it was pretty scary. And this person, his name was Bill Jackson, my fourth heavenly messenger. And he's just sitting there, just calm, content, thoughtful, curious. There's a kindness, a humility. Just his presence alone touched me. As the weeks went by, like his presence was very stable in this way. And, and I began to realize that this guy knows something. I had no idea what he knows, but I knew that I wanted to know what it is that he knows. Because there was something about his contentment and his presence and his being that was just amazing to me. I think very opposite than my confused, lost, desperate qualities. And he assigned the very first reading for us to study and to read and to devour. It was the Tao Te Ching by Lao Tzu. And when I started reading the Tao Te Ching, I couldn't believe that someone had written about life in such simple and incredibly profound and humble ways. I was so taken by the Tao Te Ching. I never knew that this type of literature, this type of way of thinking about life existed in the world. And I just dove into the Tao. It's 81 epigrams or poems, and 
Each one of them is a jewel. But one of them in particular kept on speaking out to me. I kept on rereading it, rereading it, trying to understand what it meant. So epigram number 47. And it goes something like this. That there's no need to look outside your window for everything you need to know is inside you. There's no need to look outside your window for everything you need to know is inside you. And I kept on reading this, and I gradually began to realize that if I wanted to know something, I needed to begin to look in here. And to be very, very honest, I had never thought of that in my entire life up to that moment. I, I, just, I just didn't have a clue. I needed to begin to look in here. And that really began uh, my meditative journey, which is now many years ago. No need to look outside your window for everything you need to know is inside you. A very um, wonderful teacher from the Thai tradition, Achan Cha, someone asked him once about, can you suggest to me what books and things to read to, for the Dharma so I can understand? And he looked at the person and then he pointed here. This is, this is the book, your own heart. Same as what Latsu was saying. And so that was just so, for me personally, um, I have so much gratitude to Bill Jackson and this pointing back into begin to look inside your own heart. Happy to say that so many years went by, I lost contact with Bill. He went on actually to Harvard, full scholarships, and got a PhD in, in world religions there and ended up teaching and retiring from Purdue in Indiana, I believe it is. But somehow I found him on Facebook. <laughs> Yay, Facebook. I don't work for Facebook. Um, but I was actually... Some years ago, I was actually able to connect with him and to thank him. He had no idea him sitting on top of that desk and how that it so deeply changed my life. I didn't know that there was a path to understand all this life. That's the fourth heavenly messenger. And I trust that you have all met this messenger maybe many messengers that touched you, pointed away, maybe Insight Retreat Center is a messenger because here's a place we come to to awaken, to learn about our hearts. There's many messengers. I've had many teachers since then. You're all my teachers. We're, we're each, each other's teachers. But this, uh, this fourth heavenly messenger, that there's, maybe there's a way can make some sense of things, to grow with more wisdom, to begin to become more free of the stories that have enslaved us, the liberating teachings of the Dharma, potentially giving us more contentment, open-heartedness, and clarity of the mind and heart. So, I think I'll just end now with one reading. And this is by Song Kappa. It's called The Human Body. 
the human body at peace with itself is more precious than the rarest of gems. Cherish your body. It is yours this one time only. The human form is one with difficulty and it is easy to lose. All worldly things are brief like lightning in the sky. This life you must know as the tiny splash of a raindrop, a thing of beauty that disappears even as it comes into being. The human body at peace with itself is more precious than the rarest of gems. So thank you for your heart and listening and and I do want to invite you um, in this um, this is a walking practice for a half hour and you're welcome to reflect upon if um, these messengers the messenger like what brings you here what brings you to this practice our own challenges in our life complexity of interpersonal relationships, the challenges of aging, illness, death, and your teachers that have helped brought you onto this path. Reflect upon these messengers as a contemplative type of walk. Also let you know that if you haven't um, signed up for the group practice discussions, they're on the door that leads into the dining area and you can just write your name in there and we would really appreciate that everyone uh, participate in this and um, you'll see different times and different teachers and um, there will be we'll tell you more about the group access discussions what happens in them um, tomorrow and then the following two days Friday and Saturday we'll be seeing people individually and uh, we'll, we'll be um, uh, helping to just, um, we'll, we'll write your name and who you'll be seeing and the time and so forth. But that's to be, that will be later. So thank you so much, and um, see you shortly.